good morning. Um, thank you all for coming. Um, first thing is to check that the microphone is working. So I look to the back of the hall. I've had a signal. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Nick Stern. I'm a professor at the here at the LSE. Uh, it's a real delight to have with us today my good friend uh, Fatih Birol uh, on my right. Fatih and I have been discussing these issues uh, for a very long time. Fatih's leadership is well known. Uh, sorry. We, Fatih's leadership is uh, well known, I hope, to you all. I've learned immensely from him uh, about these issues, and he is a, uh, 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 a very strikingly dominant world figure on uh, forming ideas and bringing big issues to the table. Not just the issues themselves, but also how to think about them and how to go forward in action. So, Fatty, we're all enormously in your debt. On the subject matter of this special report, redrawing the uh, energy climate map, uh, you get, a, I think, the reward, one of the rewards for coming is you get a copy of uh, the book, but the main reward for coming is you get to hear Fatty. And um, uh, before I introduce him, let me just underline... Um, how strongly I agree with the key assertions or key arguments they're not assertions, they're arguments of this report we're very badly behind on a two degree path and we have to accelerate action the science is still more worrying uh, as the evidence comes in uh, still more strongly the actions which Fatih recommends or the report Recommends the four for two, which you'll uh, hear about directly from him, are practical and uh, can have a really substantial effect on accelerating what we're doing. I'm not going to go through the four for two, Patty will tell us about that. But this is a, a practical, strong way of accelerating action, one which uh, should be attractive to people, even if they don't know or are not very committed on climate change. Of course, they should be if they'd understood the evidence properly. But buying time, of course, is uh, very helpful. The actions involved on energy efficiency and so on are very helpful. But that time has to be used. And um, as the 4 for 2 are implemented, as we hope that they would be, we have to get on with it with renewables, substitution of gas for coal, which can be a very important part of the story, has to be seen as a bridge to a future which is still cleaner than gas. could be gas with abatement, gas with carbon capture and storage. But gas can only be a bridge. Um, it can be a useful bridge, but that's something we have to get on with. And, of course, <coughs> Fatty will focus on energy. There's so much to do also on the third or so of emissions which are outside energy, agriculture, forests, and so on. And there's so much that we have to do there. But Fatih, I hope you're well known to everybody as the Chief Economist and uh, Director of Global Energy Economics at the International Energy Agency. Uh, I'm sure people have come because uh, they know uh, who you are. Um, 
I'm not going to run through uh, all your distinctions, which are many, but just to underline, uh, we're very grateful for you uh, coming today. We're very grateful for your intellectual and practical and political leadership on all this, and we're looking forward very much to listening to you. Um, Just before Fatih speaks, there will be one more speaker, and that is uh, Greg Barker, who will be coming from the Department of Energy and Climate Change. He should be here about uh, 10 o'clock, so we have to assume that he will have read the report, and I'll remind him of that assumption when he arrives. So, Fatih, thank you very much. So, uh, good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Nick, thank you very much for, first of all, uh, inviting me here and organizing this meeting. And uh, secondly, thank you very much for all the support you gave uh, to this uh, very project. Uh, when I had the idea or the thought of doing such a project, one of the first person I shared this idea was uh, Nick in uh, Davos uh, this uh, year, in, in, in January, when we were making the first moves, and I got a lot of support, encouragement, and, of course, uh, uh, lots of ideas from Nick, and thank you very much. And the third thing that <coughs> I finish it here, Nick, is what you have done uh, to push the climate change agenda in this country and uh, uh, globally. Very much appreciated. When we talk about uh, uh, thanks, also thanks to the UK government for supporting this uh, work, uh, the work that I have done for some time, and I am very glad uh, today that the, uh, Mr. Predel, who is our former executive director of the IEA and the editor of this report is with us, as well as Mr. Dan Dörner, who is one of the main authors of this uh, work. We published the report on uh, Monday, this Monday in London. Yesterday I was in Bonn uh, for a day, made a special session in the UN uh, negotiations uh, uh, of the, uh, climate change. Uh, we discussed this issue and we will be making uh, several presentations with governments, with press uh, throughout the next uh, weeks to share some of the uh, key findings of our work. And uh, I I should uh, tell you that I am <coughs> rather surprised with the reaction we received since Monday, but surprised in a very positive way, because climate change is not something that everybody uh, agrees upon. If they agree, first of all, on the climate change, the one agreement, then if they agree on the existence of climate change, what kind of steps uh, need to be put forward? So I was expecting uh, more mixed reactions to our work, but we got overwhelmingly positive reaction from different corners. Yesterday, uh, one of the major uh, resource uh, owner countries, minister and the environmental minister, made a supporting statement uh, just uh, on this uh, work, and uh, many companies and so on. So this gives me a bit more courage about the work, and more importantly, about our efforts for addressing uh, climate change. So let me turn to uh, to report uh, what uh, we have uh, done. First of all, uh, I should tell you that uh, we are at the IEA, uh, we are energy experts. We are not climate experts, and we look at energy and climate in terms of energy's responsibility uh, to climate issues. And as energy experts, as energy people, one thing surprises me. Uh, we are because we work with numbers, with the with the with the models and statistics. There is a, a tragic paradox 
between two trends. The first trend is scientific evidence on climate change is increasing. On the other hand, the interest uh, of governments to address the climate change is decreasing. So normally, from a, from a mathematical point of view, they should be uh, going in parallel, up or downwards, but one of them is going upwards, the other one is going downwards, which is, I believe, a, a, a rather pity and something that we have to uh, uh, keep an eye on. Second thing is uh, for us, why we did this study? We got a lot of questions from the press. Why does the International Energy Agency, World Energy Outlook, works on climate change? Very simply, because energy is responsible for uh, two-thirds of the greenhouse gas emissions. Nick just mentioned there are other areas beyond energy, definitely so, which are very important, but we know the energy, and it is a key part, two-thirds of the emissions, and two-thirds means, uh, basically, if we cannot find a solution within the energy sector to address the climate change, so uh, we cannot uh, solve this problem at all. And I, when I look at the recent, some recent energy trends, what I see is that the dynamics between gas and uh, coal give different uh, results to the CO2 emission reductions. In some countries, such as U.S., they lead to decline in emissions because gas is replacing coal. But in some other countries, such as UK, it is the opposite. So uh, therefore, uh, as Nick rightly said, we cannot rely on gas at all, and I will come to it in a minute, just to, uh, alone to address the climate change. Renewables are increasing, but for the first time last year, we have seen a slowdown in the renewable investment worldwide, which is uh, uh, definitely uh, uh, worrying. One good news, ladies and gentlemen, is on efficiency front, energy efficiency. Up to now, in the meetings, in the uh, government programs, in the uh, discussions, we talk about energy efficiency, and there was a, there's a general understanding, a cliche, that uh, we talk about energy efficiency, but nothing happens. And this is now wrong. I declare this as a wrong because in many countries, especially big countries, energy efficiency measures end up with real gains. U.S. is one example. Some of you may remember that in the last November, we published the World Energy Outlook with a main message. U.S. is becoming sufficient in oil. Uh, and everybody talk about Saudi America and other things. And people uh, miss one very important point there, which is the following. U.S. is becoming self-sufficient, not only, as the newspapers and many wrote, because of the increase in oil production, but at the same time, decrease in the domestic oil consumption as a result of the first Obama administration setting fuel efficiency standards for cars and trucks. So there are two drivers of uh, making giant steps to self-sufficiency. Uh, one is the increasing domestic oil production, and the second one is decreasing domestic oil consumption. Therefore, this success story is not only the one which belongs to North Dakota, but also to Detroit in the terms, changing the patterns of uh, uh, cars and trucks as a result of real efficiency policies. So efficiency policies do deliver, and I will give an example in a minute on China, and therefore we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't uh, forget that. 
Nuclear power is facing more and more challenges after uh, Fukushima, and CCS, a crucial, a very critical technology, remains distant in many cases. If I look at the uh, CO2 emissions last year, what happened? We first of all see that the global emissions increased 1.4%, and the CO2 emissions globally reached a record high. And when we look at the countries, we see mixed results. Japan, for example, Japanese emissions increased about uh, 6%, which is one of the largest in the last two decades. This is mainly as a result of after Fukushima, lots of power plants, nuclear power plants were shut down and they were replaced by uh, LNG and coal. In India, we have seen a lower than uh, uh, normal pattern of increase of 2.5%, mainly as a result of the uh, slower economic growth. And in Europe, in Europe, we have seen a slight decline, mainly driven by the economic uh, downturn. But there is one country which shows, among others, a strong increase in emissions, which is UK. And UK emissions increased by about 4.5%, uh, uh, mainly as a result of strong growth of coal uh, in the UK electricity uh, generation. Two, well, we have to look at the two largest emitters, and there are some encouraging news here. One of them is China. Chinese emissions increased 3.8%, still significant, but it is one of the lowest in the last few decades. And it is half of the, the absolute terms, it is half of the increase compared to 2011. And in the United States, emissions declined in 2012 uh, to the level of mid-1990s U.S. emissions, which is, of course, another, I believe, encouraging data. Let me look at these two countries just a, a minute, because they are, both of them together make about 45% of the global emissions. In terms of U.S., there are two reasons why we have seen this big decline of emissions. One is the uh, efficiency, but the main reason is gas replacing coal. Now, here we have to be careful. Only five years ago, the share of coal in U.S. electricity generation was about 50%, and as of 2012, it went down to 35%. So in a huge country like United States, 15 percentage point decline of a share of a fuel is a big thing. And this has happened because of the shale gas. But here, I want to make, put a, a warning, which I will do also next week in uh, New York and D.C., the reason why Americans used a lot of shale gas, not because shale gas is cleaner, it's not the main reason, not because it is a domestic fuel, not because it is a new innovation and they discover new uh, technologies and so on. It is mainly because it is cheaper. So the shale gas, the gas was very cheap in the United States. It was last year $2.8, but... Now, when you look at this year, 2013, as of now, 
it creeped up the prices to $4.2. And according to our analysis, if it comes to $5, the prices, gas prices, which may well be the case, we may well see coal to make a comeback. So if the gas prices increase and you need to have higher gas prices to make new investment profitable, we may see a comeback of uh, coal and these very nice trends may reverse in the absence of EPA to put regulatory measures to address the issues related to coal-fired power plants. So therefore, this should be set a done deal, yes, in the United States, these changes in the trends, and they, uh, we hope that they will be permanent, but it's not there yet. China, I think very, very important. We have to, yes, uh, they increase their Chinese emissions, but much lower than uh, previous years. And these are for two reasons. One, Chinese government, in its five-year plan, set up a very strong target for energy intensity improvement. And 2012, they, made a, uh, they achieved a substantial improvement 3.8% of the energy intensity improvement, mainly as a result of major efficiency uh, uh, measures, plus lots of renewables, mainly hydropower and wind, come into the picture. So as a result of that, we see a slowdown in Chinese emissions, which is very important for China and for the uh, rest of the world. So these are some uh, encouraging data that we have to take into account and coming from these two countries. And we know, and uh, uh, if you read the papers, you also know that these two countries uh, uh, bilaterally coming together and making a lot of uh, new steps uh, in the right direction in terms of climate change. Now, this data with the 2012, we see that the emissions are uh, still increasing and going definitely in the uh, wrong direction. And this trajectory is very much in line with the temperature increase up to 5.3 degrees Celsius, which uh, many of you know much better than me, uh, would have devastating implications for our uh, planet. So therefore, we thought, as uh, Nick uh, rightly uh, uh, put, what we can do is the energy sector uh, in order to keep our two degrees target alive. One of the reasons why we have seen that the, the push, the activities on climate change slow down is because of the economic crisis and many countries are much more preoccupied with the economic issues than the climate issues. Knowing this, knowing this, and knowing our governments uh, worldwide, their preoccupation, we thought, in this context, what can we do that we can keep the temperature increase uh, uh, to 2 degrees and keep the, our hopes for 2 degrees still alive, which is becoming extremely challenging. Now, we thought there is a need to put some national efforts in order to make a bridge between now and 2020. Why 2020? In 2015, ladies and gentlemen, there will be a crucial meeting in Paris. This is the, uh, the international meeting of the uh, 
old uh, countries and climate change, similar to Copenhagen uh, meeting, which was agreed, this meeting was agreed by the old countries in the world, and with the assignment to have an agreement, international agreement on climate change, which should be enforced by 2020. So all the negotiators are putting their efforts to come to Paris in 2015, and hopefully it is a perhaps a more important meeting than Copenhagen, and hopefully more successful meeting uh, than Copenhagen, with the uh, expected time, expected plan is to have an international legally binding agreement which will come into force by 2020. However, what will happen between now and 2020 is critical. If we do not do anything, just sit back and wait, then the amount of task we are going to uh, have in front of us in, uh, in the next years to come will be much bigger. Therefore, it will be much more difficult to have an agreement, because it will be much costlier, and, and also a lot of energy infrastructure will be already made and a lot of carbon will be already locked in. So therefore, we thought we can do some national efforts for the time being in, a, a, in, a, a, in the energy sector. And when we chose these national efforts, we, don't want to, we didn't want to go over the board. We want to be realistic and pragmatic because we know the energy sector. And we chose our uh, measures uh, passing through the filter of, of uh, uh, some key criteria. First of all, there should be some measures which would uh, bring quick emission reductions and in significant terms. Second, very important, they shouldn't harm the economic growth. So no net cost to the global economy of given country, which is, it is, as I said, we know the economic conditions, we know the government's uh, uh, challenges. Third, they should rely on the existing technologies. So you don't need to discover a new technology. Just with the existing technologies, then you should be able to put, uh, push these uh, 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 measures. And fourth, which is, I think, very important for developing nations especially, they should bring uh, uh, benefits, those measures, in addition to climate change on other fronts, such as reducing of local air pollution in many countries. So we have shown that those measures, for example, have a big impact on the reduction of SO2, NOx, and particulate matters for China, India, and other uh, uh, countries. So we look at the en entire energy sector, and we have built a, a, a scenario, a vision, which we call 442. Uh, this is the four policies for two degrees uh, scenario, four policies uh, for uh, keeping the uh, hopes alive for two degrees scenario. And we have chosen the following four uh, 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 measures. Now, these four measures, when you put them together, if they were to be implemented, and you will see we have a very uh, reasonable expectation uh, here, they can stop the emissions growth globally around 2020 globally. And this, the, those emissions reduction will put us uh, about 80% of the trajectory uh, of the two degrees. We don't come to two degrees by 2020, but we are coming very close to two degrees and keeping the two degrees target alive. So this is uh, uh, crucial. And this went through these four uh, criteria I mentioned uh, to you. 
no economic uh, uh, cost and with existing technologies and, and so on. What are those? The big part of comes from the energy efficiency and selected. There are many energy efficiency policies, but some of them are much easier than the others. The half of them come from there. The second one is limitations on the inefficient, I underline here, inefficient coal-fired power plants. Third one is reduction of methane emissions from oil and gas uh, uh, production. And finally, the, uh, uh, the partial phase-out of the fossil fuel uh, subsidies. Now, let me just take you through very quickly about those and to give you a sense about these four measures. First of all, the improvement energy efficiency. The big part of it comes from the, uh, the building sector, the, the mainly electrical appliances, air conditioners, refrigerators, television sets, uh, uh, cooking uh, instruments, uh, and uh, others. What you have to do is you have to put uh, high standards for the products which are coming to the market. Again, United States, this is the second Obama administration, one of the first things that they did is to put standards, legally binding standards for the uh, electrical appliances worldwide, following the good example of Europe uh, done uh, a few years ago, which followed the good example of Japan, which was done several uh, years ago. But there is still, in many countries, to make these products, more products to be under the energy efficiency standard uh, umbrella, and improving the efficiencies uh, there. Industrial motors. This is mainly an issue of China, but it's an issue of all of us. Because Chinese industrial sector is uh, <coughs> one of the major carbon emitting, I should say, the engine uh, uh, worldwide. And improving the electric motors in China would help a lot. And the, the, again, the new five-year plan in China foresees an improvement of the electric motors in the industry significantly, and the right implementation of that five-year plan would be extremely helpful for reducing the emissions, and of course beyond China, in uh, Southeast Asia, and also in the United States, we expect this to happen. And in the transport sector, efficiency improvement, not only in the cars, there are lots of uh, uh, efficiency uh, standards in the cars, but what is missing is the trucks. Trucks are growing, especially in Asia, substantially. About one-third of the global oil demand growth comes from the Asian trucks in the next 20 years. So if we can, if we can uh, put the standards for trucks in Asia, in the United States, this will also help to reduce the emissions. So we look at all of these uh, factors, and I can tell you that almost all these measures have a payback period than less than five uh, years, which is definitely important uh, to note. Second, uh, coal-fired power plants. We already, from the first measure, efficiency saving uh, means uh, less demand for electricity. We need less uh, uh, electricity coming uh, needed from coal-fired power plants, but mainly what we need to see is that in entire world, subcritical, <coughs> inefficient coal-fired power plants, the new ones, should be banned. This is the message that we are coming uh, with. The, the ones under construction can go ahead, but the ones which are to be built new 
should be above certain efficiency levels. And this is something which is discussed in many countries. In the US, EPA is working uh, on this. In China, in the last uh, three years, more than 70 gigawatts of inefficient coal-fired power plants have been shut down, mainly for local pollution reasons, but it also helps the, the, the uh, climate change. Again, in India, there are uh, discussions uh, on that. There is a new legislation on the table now, which uh, also looks at the whether or not they should uh, uh, shut down inefficient or not allow inefficient coal-fired power plants. So this is the second uh, suggestion uh, measure uh, we have. The third one is a subject that many of us uh, may uh, know for the first time, which is the following. Uh, during the production of oil and gas, a significant uh, proportion or a significant portion of the methane escapes to atmosphere. And this, is, this may be as a result of uh, uh, not having the right equipments and also it may be uh, on, on purpose as a part of the uh, uh, operation. And uh, we thought, you see it always in the literature, first of all we thought, how much is it? And there is no number. So we made a substantial analysis, you will see in our report, for the first time in the world, to my knowledge, that we have found out that, as of today, about 1.1 gigaton of CO2 equivalent of methane escapes to uh, uh, atmosphere. And this can be, this is the tragic thing, this can be easily fixed by replacing the old infrastructure, by using the right equipments, right compressors, right valves, and this would need... Of course, the government regulation and the oil industry, gas industry, to come forward and increase their capital expenditures a few percentage points and to fix the problem. And uh, we know that some governments are working on that, Russia, uh, US, uh, Brazilian government. And if this very easy, easily uh, implementable uh, measures are uh, put together, we can easily uh, reduced emissions in 2020 by 50%. And I believe this will be a part of the next, uh, not this one, but the one after G8 meeting uh, uh, to follow the uh, UK one, and because some of the G8 countries are very keen to address this issue. Finally, the fossil fuel subsidies. <laughs> we have today more than half a trillion of fossil fuel subsidies. And this is a bit of an interesting uh, story to talk about this in Europe because of the following. In Europe, we have an emission trading system, which means, I think if I'm not wrong, nowadays about five US dollars to provide a disincentive to emit carbon from fossil fuels. It's about five, I hope it is... Uh, it will be a higher, but currently five dollar. And the rest of the world, this fossil fuel subsidies mean, provides an incentive of hundred ten dollar per ton of CO2. <coughs> so five dollar just to provide it to use the carbon-related fuels less. Here we try to do it in Europe and some other countries, but a, a big chunk uh, uh, where the uh, emissions come from. Uh, 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 the, those fossil fuel subsidies mean, according to our calculations, $110 per ton of CO2 to use more carbon to emit more 
and uh, G20 has this in its agenda, G8 has this in the agenda, APEC countries have this in, in their agenda, and they are trying to reform this. And I can tell you that there are some improvements here. Russia made some improvements, Indonesia made some improvements. Nigeria wanted to make a big step, but there were problems, they got back, but still, compared to where they start, there is, a, there is an improvement there. So uh, we hope to see more improvements to come here, and those improvements will be made not because of, uh, once again, to address the climate change, but to, to, to improve the uh, domestic budget issues and to have a more efficient, sustainable energy system. So these are the four measures we hope the governments will adopt, and the, as I said, in the last two days, the reaction we got was beyond our expectations, and we hope to see, and uh, our uh, governments are going to discuss in November in Paris, uh, in the ministerial, our ministerial meeting, uh, those uh, four measures uh, to uh, hopefully to uh, uh, push forward. Now, this is the uh, good part of the story. What happens if, the, if this doesn't uh, work out? If we see an increasing temperature? What are the implications of increasing temperature on the energy sector? So there's another way uh, of, this, uh, uh, of this story. So we also looked at it, and it's the first time we look at this issue, how the energy sector would be affected from the effects of, uh, from the changes in the climate change. And we use for the first time, it may be unimportant for you, but for us it is important, the word of adaptation. So this is uh, 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 highlighting our uh, position uh, here. And what we see, there are gradual effects and there are sudden effects of climate change on the energy sector. The gradual effects are many, but if I can only focus on electricity generation here, as a result of increasing temperature, we will see more and more droughts and heat waves. And this, this would mean that in many areas of the world, especially in China, in India, and also in the United States, the increasing need for cooling, cooling demand will increase, and also, in terms of power plants, I don't know, uh, some of you may not be uh, very familiar with the electricity uh, uh, sector, but for m uh, most of the power plants, for the thermal power plants, you need the uh, power plant to be cooled down, the towers, by water. And then the water will be warmer, so the cooling uh, process will be much more difficult, and more importantly, the water stress in many countries will make the cooling down of the uh, uh, power plants much more difficult. In China last year, there was a major problem, power cut, because of availability of, non-availability of uh, water. So this will become a major issue, water stress for the electricity generation. And there are also sudden and more destructive effects of climate change, and the changing climate uh, would mean more tropical uh, cyclones, and uh, storms and, and flooding, and this would have, of course, affecting the energy infrastructure, but we mapped out that there are some areas which are going to be affected more than the others. For example, in uh, Gulf of Mexico, we saw some examples, North Sea, Western Australia, which are very much exposed, uh, the oil and gas uh, rigs platforms exposed to the uh, cyclones and uh, storms, and this would mean uh, that the uh, oil and gas industry will be affected from that. And leave aside to be, to be affected uh, from that, even if there was nothing, they have to make 
additional investments in order to increase the resilience of their platforms, their, their rigs, which will put uh, a cost on uh, their capital uh, expenditures, we are, which are not uh, definitely peanuts. Therefore, the uh, one message here is that energy sector is not a, cannot be a part of the solution. Uh, the, the sector will be affected by the increasing temperature and, and the climate on the infrastructure of the energy sector and needs to be well prepared for uh, the sudden and the gradual change in the temperature. I will finish uh, my uh, remarks on, uh, uh, with two slides. What happens this time if, we, uh, if the governments would agree it becomes imperative for the governments to put the, uh, uh, the uh, word on a two degrees uh, trajectory? So when I say if the governments would uh, uh, agree uh, to a two-degree trajectory. At that time, we had the Mr. Secretary coming in, which is a good news that the government is showing their interest to agree on a two-degree uh, trajectory. Thank you very much, uh, uh, sir. Uh, now, then what would be the impacts of a two-degree trajectory on the uh, energy sector? First of all, we have a lot of oil, gas, and coal Reserves, proven reserves. Leave aside the two degrees, even with our central scenario, no climate, major climate action is taken in our central scenario, which is more or less in line with a four degrees trajectory, which we call new policy scenario. We see that the, around 2050, anyways, half of the global fossil fuel reserves will not be used most of them being coal. And this is, again, in a four degrees, with the, with the current policies, current policy trends, uh, where uh, we may be going. But if we see a two degrees, if we go for a two degrees trajectory, then about two-thirds of the proven fossil fuel reserves may be stranded. And this is something that the, gov the governments and most more importantly, the companies may need to pay attention to. This is mainly coal, but also affects oil and gas reserves. So, uh, therefore, uh, I think it is in the interest of companies to take into consideration the implications of a two degrees trajectory for their investment decisions in the next years uh, to come. When we look at the electricity generation, a similar picture uh, emerges. These are the revenues, substantial amount of re re revenues, the renewable, nuclear, and fossil fuel electricity <coughs> providers would make in our central scenario. If we go for a two degrees world, however, we see the revenues of the renewables will increase, of the nuclear will increase, but of the fossil fuels will be rather declining. And this is again mainly coal. And this will be declining even more if there is no carbon capture and storage put together with uh, coal. 
In terms of natural gas, natural gas uh, is definitely increases its share in all our scenarios, less in some, more in others, but coal will be definitely uh, badly uh, hurt uh, here. So let me finish uh, our uh, remarks by telling you uh, that there are some encouraging steps, as I mentioned to you, uh, uh, especially uh, some uh, good data coming from US and China uh, and uh, uh, putting a lot of efforts in other countries. These are good uh, efforts, but the world is definitely in the wrong direction, as Nick uh, mentioned in the beginning, which is varying for, uh, for all of us. And we think since there is no yet an uh, international climate change agreement, it is very important that there are early national actions on these four measures I mentioned uh, to you. These measures are definitely uh, uh, easy to implement, no uh, uh, harm to uh, economy, and they do not come to a two degrees trajectory, but they are good enough to keep the chances alive for a two degrees trajectory. So this is uh, another uh, point. And these four measures are rather reformist, not revolutionary measures, if I may say so, but we also need other technologies much more radical uh, zero-carbon technology, such as the carbon capture and storage. And to me, nuclear power to be a part of the game if we want to see a lower CO2 emission trends in the future, if we want to keep the two degrees target uh, alive. And finally, a message to energy sector. We work very closely with the energy industry, almost all the energy companies, uh, big companies uh, 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 from around the world. And I can tell you that the energy sector cannot afford uh, not to take climate change into consideration. As I tried to show you, either energy sector will be affected from the global uh, warming through its impacts on the uh, resilience and the infrastructure, or if the world, if the governments decide to go for a two degrees trajectory, this will have uh, implications for the assets of the, uh, uh, the energy companies, and they may well take into consideration this probability when they make a, a short, medium, and long-term investment uh, decisions. So with these words, I thank you very much for your attention and give the floor back to Nick. Uh, thank you very much. Patty, uh, thank you very much indeed. I, I think there are very few reports where you can say they transform the debate, but I think this is one of those reports which will transform the debate. So thank you very much to you and all your team for preparing that. Um, the teenage mischief maker in me can't help resist uh, the remark that the manager of the England football team has been under a lot of criticism for 4-4-2, but uh, your four for two is uh, uh, going to be embraced with much greater enthusiasm than his tactics. Okay, well, uh, teenage jokes are over. Um, <laughs> and um, what we return to issues of, of fundamental importance here. 
and uh, we're going to get a chance to talk them through with Fatih uh, in a moment. But first, it's a great pleasure to um, have with us today uh, Greg Barker. Uh, Greg has shown outstanding leadership in this area. He, <coughs> excuse me, he led the passage of the climate change bill um, in the House of Commons uh, for when yeah, I, the, the, the second part of the sentence was uh, when he was in opposition he led it for the Conservative but it shows the long term the object of the remark is to underline the long term commitment that Greg has had uh, in this area and uh, as a minister he has played a crucial role in climate change and energy policy and if you forgive me Greg I want to underline that you're one of the uh, increasingly rare breed of British politicians who actually had a serious career before going into uh, politics, working on finance and energy. So you've seen the story uh, on the ground uh, from the point of view of the private sector and so on. So uh, all those things mean that your thoughts on this are of special importance and I'd like to thank you also, as I did Fatih, thank you for your leadership in this area. So we'll hear from Greg and then we'll throw the floor open to questions. Thanks so much for coming, Greg. Thank you very much, Nick. I'm delighted to uh, be here for the launch of this very important uh, report and support the great work that the IEA is doing, particularly um, in front of such a distinguished audience, um, including, rather scarily, my old boss, um, <laughs> of, whom I, of whom I remain a huge admirer. Um, but redrawing the energy climate map is a serious report that must command not just our attention, but a wider audience as well. And it is a very welcome injection of scientific fact and up-to-date data um, an injection into a debate that is becoming increasingly unscientific and marked by opinion rather than firm data. And so this is a very, very um, timely um, as well as um, important uh, contribution. Um, now, this coalition has famously pledged to be the greenest government ever. And I want to underline that that pledge remains as true today after three years or more in government, with all the challenges that means, as it was in the early dawn of the coalition um, in 2010. But now we have an increasing record of green delivery to actually point to. But for all of those things that we can tick the box and be pleased that we've managed to deliver over the past three years... At the heart of our policy programme of low-carbon delivery and innovation remains a fundamental conviction that climate change is the greatest long-term threat that mankind faces in the 21st century. But in addition to that, this government believes that acting on climate change is not only the right thing to do for our planet, but if we approach it in the right way, it's the right thing to do for our economy too. And more than that, whatever way you look at it, we believe that increasingly the world is coming to that conclusion as well. That to be greener, more resource efficient 
and more energy efficient in an age of climate volatility, population growth and expanding global middle class, all competing for finite resources, that this is the sensible, pragmatic, long-term thing to do. And I hope that the UK will play an increasingly leading role in forging this more sustainable world and more sustainable global economy. Let me be clear why that is. One, the climate science, despite the debate in the media, remains robust, and to ignore it or pay less attention to it would simply be reckless. But in the current financial environment, we have to be realistic, and we have to recognise that we need climate policies that help the planet and underpin our own national competitiveness and growth, helping here, us here in the UK stay ahead in the global race. And in that global race, that global race for economic success and prosperity, the world's most successful economies that are competing are already taking up the enormous opportunities that low-carbon growth can bring. Now, to my first point, the facts underpinning our understanding of the science remain strong. But we have to be honest and open and face up to the debate and challenge that there is in the media. Much has been made of the fact in the climate-sceptic uh, columns of the press that there has been a pause in global temperature rise over the last 15 years. And that means that some are actively suggesting that climate change may not be as bad as scientists say, or some even more extreme, saying that it may not be man-made or is simply not a problem that we need to worry or care about. We shouldn't duck this challenge or duck the evidence that they produce to support this claim. We shouldn't be afraid to confront uncomfortable facts simply because they don't suit our arguments or we're not con we don't but, um, concur with the conclusions of the people that make them. Because, yes, it is the case that average global temperature hasn't increased significantly since around 2000. And there are some uncomfortable facts. But I'm not a scientist, but I also know there is a whole overwhelming body of evidence that also uh, has to be taken into account and that you can't just selectively take your facts to, to, take, to suit your argument. The fact is, temperature plateaus are actually common as natural climate variations. And heat taken up th by the ocean can temporarily mask surface temperature trends. But in the long term, taking, taking all the evidence together, um, it's clear that the world continues to warm. And there are many other clear indicators that need to be taken into account that tell us, in no uncertain terms, that the climate is changing and potentially that heat is being absorbed by other parts of the planet. And we can see this as sea levels continue to rise, most glaciers around the world are retreating, we see the increased risk of extreme weather events, rainfall, floods, droughts, tornadoes increasing. And of course it's important that the scientific 
community continues to explore the relationship between greenhouse gases and temperature, so-called climate sensitivity, to continue to uh, iron out and explore and ultimately reduce uncertainties. But as I said, this is a very complex subject, and we shouldn't be afraid to try and explain this to a sometimes bewildered or sceptical public. But the fact remains that the best estimates we have suggest if we continue to emit greenhouse gases at current levels or increasing levels, according to this IEA report, um, we're looking at temperature rises of between 3.6 degrees and 5.3 degrees. And that is a truly scary prospect. Now, the Prime Minister understands the urgency to act but also the opportunities that stem from taking early action. Indeed, at the launch of the Department of Energy and Climate Change's Energy Efficiency Mission earlier this year, David Cameron said, to those who say we just can't afford to prioritise green energy right now, I say we can't afford not to. And thanks to the extraordinary work of Lord Stern in this area over a number of years, we are infinitely better able to understand now and compute the scale of the costs of inaction. Which brings me to my second point, that making our energy sources greener, our energy consumption more efficient, and our economy more resilient to international energy price shocks must be a win-win. A win for both the environment and for our economy. It's a vital part of the very practical, pressing, immediate point of delivering cheaper bills for hard-pressed consumers, as well as generating cleaner energy to protect our planet. And again, this is all part of a consistent strain of thought and policy to help the UK compete in the global race. And compete in a global race to get a bigger share of that global low-carbon sector that's set to be worth $4 trillion by 2015. And it's the countries that prioritise green energy now that will, that will secure the biggest share of jobs and growth. Now, already the UK run, ranks among the best places for green energy, green investment and green jobs locally. The City of London is the world's number one financial centre for low-carbon industries uh, as to raise uh, investment from, and we continue to innovate with new financial products to help drive the growth of this sector. A third of all global asset finance investment in new energy deals between 2007 and 2012 received legal or financial assistance from the UK. And our Green Investment Bank, a world first, and one which I'm very glad to say next turn to cut my invitation in the very early days when it was just a glimmer of, a, of an idea, um, uh, Nick played a crucial part in helping um, frame that idea and ultimately uh, help create what is now a key part of the architecture of the City of London, with a capital base of £3 billion available to support green projects. And it's a new institution 
that is no longer a glimmer of an idea, but is actually up, running, investing, and already not just investing its own three billion, but actually crowding in significantly greater amount of funds from the private sector and playing a genuine leadership role, a leadership role not just here in the UK economy, but also a signal to the wider global green economy too. So far, that Green Investment Bank, we reckon, has catalyzed an additional £1.9 billion of private investment. Not bad, considering really it's only been going, I don't think, for a full year yet. Pretty good going. Our pioneering Green Deal programme, a whole new market approach to uh, rolling out energy efficiency, will mean thousands of families can afford to um, insulate their homes for less. Ultimately, millions of homes will benefit from this. We have the world's first payments to business for generating renewable heat now up and running, creating a new renewable heat market, a much more difficult market to get up and going than simply generating renewable electricity. But we're doing it, and we're delivering it. We are creating the largest offshore wind market in the world. In a couple of weeks' time, the Prime Minister will inaugurate the London Array, the world's largest offshore wind farm. But that is just the beginning of a massive engineering programme. And I don't know if you know, but the size of the turbines, of which, which there will be you know, hundreds in the North Sea, um, are huge. From tip to toe, they are taller than um, the uh, Gherkin in the city of London, in span bigger than the London Eye. These are huge engineering projects and not projects that are going to stand in the middle of uh, the city of London. These are engineering projects that will be in the hostile conditions of the North Sea, far from land. And this is a huge opportunity, not just to uh, re-engineer our energy sector, but to actually regain leadership in engineering and manufacturing um, sectors um, and help rebalance our economy away from over-dependence on financial services. It's a really exciting engineering boost, the like of which we haven't seen in the UK since the 19th century. That's why the CBI, uh, or one of the reasons the CBI, has estimated that green growth contributed to at least a third of all growth in the British economy in the last two years. And in the last years for which we have figures, uh, 2011, green jobs across the UK were estimated to be around 1 million. Now that's on a par with a number of jobs in financial services. We are sixth in the global league table of green goods and services with a market share of over £120 billion. And so often people just say that the green economy is just all about subsidised renewable energy at home. Actually, these figures show it's increasingly about exports and exports not just to the traditional markets but to the very exciting markets in the developing world that we need to break into in order to guarantee our long-term prosperity. So far from being a drag on our economy, the green economy is an essential part of growth and job creation. And we need only look at the work of organisations like the IEA and its report today, um, redrawing the energy climate map, um, to show us measures to meet the the challenge of climate change can drive economic growth. Finally, let me tell you that where the UK is leading... Others are following. The world's economic powerhouses are already taking up the enormous opportunity. 
China is now ranked third amongst the countries most prepared for a low-carbon economy of the future. In the Climate Institute GE Low Carbon Index report that was published in March 2013, China, it predicted China will install 100 gigawatts of new of renewable energy by 2015. The majority of the world's solar cells are now manufactured there, and it's the largest destination for UK low-carbon goods and services. In the USA, over half of all states have now renewable energy standards. In Brazil, legislation was enacted in 2009 to reduce emissions by nearly 40% by 2020, based on the 2005 baseline. And 80% of Brazil's power is expected to come from renewables by 2030. These countries are also working together to reach agreements. China and the United States announced just this week a climate deal to work with other countries to reduce the fastest growing source of emissions, um, but one that's not talked about so much, HFCs. HFCs used in air conditioners and refrigerators, which can be 2,000 times more damaging than carbon dioxide. Just last week, I welcomed here in London the Consumer Good Forum's resolution to begin phasing out HFCs here in the UK as of 2015. And also, at European level, the UK is taking leadership position. The British government is going to be at the forefront of making the case for an ambitious EU-wide target of 50% greenhouse gas emissions reductions by 2030 as part of a global deal. But with the flexibility to reach that goal in the most cost-effective and appropriate way for each member state. So don't let anyone tell you that we're just taking unilateral action that will have no impact elsewhere while the, while the world carries on with business as usual. The world is changing. And we believe a greener world will be safer and more prosperous as well as more resilient. Our industries will produce fewer emissions. Cars will be cleaner and more efficient. People's energy consumption will be cleaner and more efficient. And the crucial point is that our climate and growth-friendly policies are helping us, the UK, to compete in this low-carbon global race. In a challenging, globalising world, we aren't just competing, we are beginning to emerge as a winner. And we are building the deep foundations of a more sustainable and enduring economy for generations to come. Thank you. Thank you, Greg, for your very thoughtful remarks, the powerful examples and the outstanding leadership. Um, uh, that was, I hope, something which <clears throat> will be made available. I, uh, would, will you be making your um, remarks available? Um, it is, yeah. If anyone wants to read them. Very good. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm sure they will, because it was, it was full of um, very powerful, important examples. So, um, thank you, Greg. We now have um, just about 20 minutes for interaction. So um, there are a great number of uh, questions and issues here. So in order to get reasonable coverage, could I ask you uh, to keep your uh, questions uh, short, keep them as questions, and um, if you could let us know who you are when you um, make your question. There is a uh, mic here. A gentleman just there. 
Thank you very much. Um, my name is Gareth Stace from EEF, the Manufacturers' Organisation. Uh, very much welcome this report. Very important, looking at the issue from a global perspective. And, and, and I was very encouraged when you were talking about energy efficiency as being very significant going forward. And I think there is a lot of low-hanging fruit there in terms of reaping the benefits from energy efficiency. What we find often is that energy efficiency may not always lead to absolute reductions in emissions. So, for example, in the domestic sector, we just live a bit more comfortably. In the industrial sector, we become more efficient, more competitive, and we make more. Um, the question then is, did you find that sort of rebound effect was there, was significant, and do you see it as a problem going forward in terms of um, reaping the benefit from energy efficiency measures? Yeah, let's take three and then uh, go turn to um, <coughs> Fatty and to Greg. Gentlemen, just here. Uh, James Leeton from Carbon Tracker. Um, it's great to see the, uh, the new map from the IEA, Fatty. Um, I think despite the the best efforts of the, the government, the city is still using a different map which shows them where the more coal and oil and gas is um, and that's where the capital is still going. Are there more things we can do to, to divert that capital um, towards the, the solutions that you suggest? Um, this gentleman here then will have one more round, at least one sure. more round of three. Yeah, hello, it's uh, Mike Wilkins from Standard & Poor's. Um, I had a question regarding the, the cost of uh, adaptation. Um, you mentioned... Um, that the impact of climate change is going to be quite considerable on the energy sector and that uh, measures need to be taken. I just wonder if you've done any estimates of how much would need to be spent to uh, reduce that impact. So energy efficiency and rebound effects, uh, is the capital going in the directions you describe, um, Patty, rather than more discovery of hydrocarbons and costs of adaptation. Start with Fatih and then Greg if you've got anything to add and then we go to the next round. you want to go first or should I go first? Should I go first? Okay. So um, <clears throat> for the rebound effects you are right. There is a rebound effect and uh, which means uh, that the, if the, we save energy uh, we do not change our habits and some of the energy we save is not necessarily a reduction in the demand. That, that may be true, and the, but all the numbers I show here takes into account after rebound. I mean, the, this is the net effects uh, here. So uh, otherwise, if we were to take the first numbers, efficiency numbers would be much higher. This is after the rebound is all taken into consideration, and the rebound effects change from sector to sector but at the order of between 10 to 15 percent, but they are all taken into account, and they are, this is the, rather the lower uh, estimate after taking the rebound out. Uh, very briefly, the second answer, if the investments are going in the right direction, uh, I don't think so, uh, but I, would, uh, I wouldn't put the, all the fossil fuels in the same category. Coal is a different story than oil and gas. Uh, especially in terms of oil and gas, uh, we see that the, even in a two degrees trajectory, all the uh, existing oil fields uh, continue to produce up to 2035, and so do the gas fields. The main problem, or the, the biggest chunk of the problem, is rather with the coal industry rather than oil and gas. Of course, they are also important. They will be affected from this, 
but uh, we should be a bit more uh, disaggregated here, more precise, the, uh, the, uh, the, the chunk of the problem that we call, especially if the carbon capture and storage is not in the picture. I, uh, I'm not a coal uh, businessman, but if I was a coal businessman, I would see CCS as a powerful uh, asset protection strategy, uh, and uh, I would really push that uh, uh, button. A cost of adaptation, we didn't have an uh, overall uh, 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 picture, but what I can tell you is that just we, we look at the RICS uh, oil and gas uh, uh, platform uh, in the uh, offshore, it would put about uh, 15, 15, 1.5% additional expenditure in order to strengthen the resilience of those rigs. Um, yes, on the rebound effect, of course there is an element of rebound effect, but it is quite variable. Um, and I think if you look at California, um, it is no coincidence that they've had a very rigorous energy efficiency regime really dating back to the 1970s. Um, and the fact that despite enjoying one of the highest standards of living, of any state in America, they also have almost um, uh, a level of per capita consumption of energy and uh, emissions that is nearly 50% below the average for um, the USA. So there is a, you know, without, and they still enjoy their jacuzzis and their flat screen TVs and their, um, their, uh, their holidays. So there is a, um, I think, a clear correlation between reducing energy consumption and energy uh, efficiency programs, policies and uh, innovation. I would also draw your attention to the energy bill that's just gone through the House of Commons, where for the first time we're going to allow energy uh, demand reduction projects to compete <coughs> with building new gas-fired power stations as an alternative way of coping with anticipated future demand. And, with, and if you actually put in demand reduction projects rather than simply just building more and more gas, that has to actually reduce overall consumption and uh, emissions. Thank you. Could I just have a show of hands on how many people will want to ask questions? Right. Um, well, we have to move very quickly if we're going to uh, have, a, have a chance. Actually, in that, there was only one lady. Are there any more ladies who'd like to ask? <laughs> yeah, I think then the next round on gender balance will be entirely uh, female. Uh, here and then Nicola and then here and then we'll get one more in Thank you, that's an advantage Um, You were saying one of your measures is um, that no subcritical power plants, coal power plants should be built Now I'm wondering what about the existing old coal power plants, shall they be upgraded to supercritical level as well, is that necessary Um, especially in Europe Um, would be very Good to have your views. Thank you. Thank you. I th- this is an excellent report, and I really like the, the way that it focuses on you and what we need to do now. I'm wondering about what it says about what we need to do in the long run now, for, for the long run, given the path dependencies. I'm particularly wondering about Africa. Um, Africa appears in a number of places in the report, but not throughout. And, and I think there's some really good priorities in here for Africa. But, but what do we need to be doing for their, those sort of countries now um, for the long term? I, I forgot to remind, to give name, but that was Nicola Ranger who works in DFID. Is, uh, Ken, perhaps connected with the Africa question, but rightly so. Um, please. Um, can I just give, you, give your name, please? Clay Land from Chatham House here in London. 
My question is about the, the impact of price, um, particularly the oil price and how that affects other energy commodities. Um, what do you factor in as a, in, in your uh, planning in, the, in terms of the long-term trajectory for price? And what sort of dangers would um, price volatility bring in terms of sustainable investments in efficiency and uh, renewable energy? First, a very brief answers. Uh, the, uh, for the power plants which are below a certain efficiency uh, levels, for example, in Europe uh, we thought it's about 40%. In the developing nations, in China, India, a bit lower, 35 36%. If they are lower, there are two ways, according to our uh, measures which are detailed out. Either they are upgraded and they come to a uh, uh, increase the efficiency and there's a, a retrofitting there or their operation time is limited without uh, having implications for the stability of the uh, uh, network. So uh, no way out uh, to go like this. Either retrofitting to increase the efficiency and to, to have a higher efficiency or limitation of their uh, uh, operation uh, hours without harming the uh, stability. Africa is... Uh, <coughs> A, a, a key part of the, uh, our uh, attention, but Africa is not a main polluter uh, now. It is mainly because of the very low per capita emissions. But I can tell you, if I may, something if uh, Nick allows me, in the World Energy Outlook every year, we focus on one country and make an in-depth analysis everything about that country in terms of energy. And next year, the World Energy Outlook will focus uh, entirely on Africa and we make Africa work in the world project next year. Uh, third point, oil prices. In fact, uh, what we have assumed here in this study, we assumed that uh, our uh, basic oil price assumptions, which is about $100 more or less, and these four measures to be pushed forward, they do, we do not need additional carbon price or oil prices. If they were to be there, it would accelerate definitely, but they are not the main driver of the changes what I'm mentioning here. They are more coming from the national uh, efforts, uh, government uh, efforts uh, coming here. If there was a carbon price, it would make life much easier, a significant carbon price throughout the world. But in the absence of this, we can do this in, in the meantime. Yeah. Thank you, Greg. Um, yes, on the um, issue of coal, whether it's supercritical or not, basically we can't keep building coal-fired power stations, and certainly here in the UK, um, unabated coal um, is a no-no, and that's why we have an emissions performance standard, and we need to encourage other countries to um, adopt that as well. But it is very worrying the impact of cheap coal um, is having um, across Europe uh, and more widely. And I think we have to think here in a more joined-up way around the impact of unconventional gas, because at the moment we've just really got unconventional gas limited to North America, and all that's doing is, is not, while American emissions are coming down as a result of going to gas, what's happening is that it's just diverting their coal into other, into other markets, and it's having a very, very um, uh, negative impact. So in the absence of, a, in the short term, or short to medium term, of CCS solutions, we need more gas. And globally, um, the, you know, I, I think if we can have a, a dash for gas, that could provide the bridge to that sort of long-term, cleaner um, solution where CCS can emerge. So we, I think we should, those of us who think of ourselves as at the green end of the spectrum shouldn't necessarily be afraid about 
embracing gas, particularly for the wider global community. In respect of Africa, um, the real opportunities there are distributed energy. Um, what we've really got to help is that aspiring African middle class um, who are coming through um, to actually improve their standards of living um, by adopting new distributed technologies, particularly solar, but there are others as well, rather than feeling they have to go to a, a, a uh, centrally generated, grid-connected uh, model. Um, they don't, and it's, there are lots of exciting technological developments, and that's where we should be aiming our uh, systems. Um, and then, um, what was the third one? Oil prices. Oil prices, I think I defer to, mm. defer, defer to you on that. <laughs> Um, so another round of three. This gentleman, you've been very patient. There. Andrew, Andrew Raingold, Executive Director from the Aldersgate Group, which is an alliance of some of the UK's largest businesses and NGOs. I'd like to ask um, Fatty about one of the cornerstones of the 442 framework, which is this uh, not harming economic growth and how that's actually measured if it's um, on a very short-term basis, cost-benefit basis, or if it takes much wider concerns into account, such as longer-term growth and um, jobs and industrial benefits as well. Thank you. This gentleman here, and then the gentleman right at the back. Murray Burt from Deutsche Bank. Uh, we specifically welcomed uh, the report yesterday with a statement uh, from Vice Chairman uh, Kyle Koch-Baser, um, so we think it's great analysis. Of, of the risks. I wanted to ask about the prospects for um, unconventional oil and gas in the U.S. Of course, it's helped them to reduce their emissions and helping them to reindustrialize, which is very welcome. But where do you see it? It's taking more drilling to maintain the level of production. What are the, what's the, far, the prognosis? Elliot Whittington from the, corp the Prince of Wales Corporate Leaders Group. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about the uh, point about fossil fuel subsidies and the phase-out of fossil fuel subsidies. I mean, I think you, you sort of laid out the case for that as one of the, the four early actions very clearly, and if you compare the, the $110 incentive with the current carbon price in, the, in Europe, you've got a really strong, urgent uh, piece of work there. But obviously that's not a new issue that's been discussed in the past, and I wondered if you could give, from maybe from your recent conversations, any indications of how uh, more momentum and energy might be put behind that area. Okay. Thank you very much. Let me go in the reverse order this time to answer. Um, now, um, to be honest with you, I see a growing momentum in many countries to address the fossil fuel subsidies, but this is not because of the climate change. This is mainly because of their domestic uh, uh, budget pressures and they are not able to afford governments to put money uh, to subsidizing uh, fossil fuels in a, uh, such a, a generous way. And the interesting thing is this is also happening in major oil exporting countries. About 50% of the fossil fuel subsidies are in, in Middle East countries. So uh, what is happening is even the largest, one of the largest uh, oil exporters there, since the domestic oil consumption is skyrocketing because of the extremely cheap oil product prices, the availability of oil to export is diminishing, which is their main revenue generator. So it is the very reason now we see even some countries that we couldn't uh, think of, they are pushing the fossil fuel subsidy uh, reforms. And uh, as I said, that, for example, Russia made a very 
good improvement in terms of the uh, natural gas uh, uh, prices. Again, Indonesia and Nigeria, they are making some steps, and uh, G20 is pushing the button. But I have to be honest, I don't think that the, uh, the climate change will be the main driver for these countries to change their, uh, put their prices in line with the international practices. It will be main the domestic uh, budget pressures and uh, the, the economic situation. So uh, unconventional gas, yes, unconventional gas uh, will uh, have to reduce the emissions. But once again, gas is not a panacea. Gas alone will not bring us to a two degrees trajectory. Gas with help, definitely, but we will still need efficiency, renewables, nuclear power, I believe, carbon capture and uh, storage. But they do help, they do reduce it, especially if it replaces the coal, which is the case in the United States and hopefully in other uh, regions. Macroeconomy, if we look at the, uh, the economic effects uh, throughout the economy, uh, all the sectors of the economy and the readjustment in the economy, not in the short term but through 2020, and we know that there may be some losers in the one given economy, but there will be a, a, a winners as well. And the overall, the global economic growth up to 2020 will not be uh, affected from these four measures put in place. In fact, we could have chosen, made there are many other uh, measures which are everybody loves, everybody agrees, but nothing happens. The reason we chose these four, they went through the filter of not harming the economic growth. As we know, that the governments will be very picky on the, yes, these measures are nice and good, but we have the economic problem here. So in order to, uh, the, to face that uh, the question, we went through this test and they do not harm the economic growth until 2020 in a given country. Um, yes, just on this issue of fossil fuel subsidies, we have to tread a little bit carefully here um, because you know, Fatih's right that many of the um, subsidies are paid by middle-income countries in the, in the Middle East, but also a very substantial amount of subsidy um, are paid in some of the world's poorest countries. And we mustn't try and heal the planet on the backs of the poorest people in the world. I mean, in India, for example, a huge ele element of the government budget is subsidising diesel. Um, and the reason for that is that the rural poor, people really very, very poor indeed, um, would not be able to afford um, the very, very basics uh, of life um, if, the, if they weren't highly subsidised to enable them to buy fuel for their generator or their cooking stove. So we have to make sure that alternatives are in place and that we don't just pull away the, the support for people who really are at the very, very um, uh, on the very, very lowest incomes in the, in the global uh, economy. And this isn't just about chucking, you know, uh, government subsidy to Exxon and the, and the, uh, the fossil fuel lobby. Um, and then in terms of um, uh, US gas, I mean, I think, uh, you know, Fatty's absolutely right. I think we have to make sure that we don't just simply allow the fracking phenomena to be a US phenomena, which means that all they do is reduce their emissions and, and then displace cheap coal into other markets. We need to make sure that gas is accessible, particularly to growing um, uh, markets in the developing world. And if China could actually start um, growing, using gas in the medium term, rather than building quite so many coal-fired power stations, that could be a game-changer. Very good. Um, I'm sorry the, we're going to have to uh, close. The, the programme has, uh, at least one given to me, closing remarks by the chair. I'm going to try to be here uh, very short, but I will make um, one or two. Um,
First on energy subsidies, if you let people have something that is costly for nothing, that's a subsidy. Um, if you take that correct, from the point of view of public economics, public finance, this is a university after all, if you take that correct definition of a subsidy, as the IMF has done in a recent uh, uh, paper of um, March, you see that subsidies are actually even bigger than they look if you look at formal subsidies. If you take the cost of um, air pollution, if you take the cost of um, greenhouse gases, if you attribute some as the cost of congestion, you see that subsidies are even bigger than the half a trillion or so that uh, Fatih described. And many of that extra subsidy you see from looking at it correctly, many of those are in rich countries. So I think that's a very important point to think about when we think about unwinding energy subsidies. It's actually an even bigger agenda than it would look if you just looked at the formal subsidies. Second, to follow uh, Greg's arguments that we have to be clear that the current flatness is uh, understandable of temperature now, is understandable in terms of oscillations. Essentially four key phenomena. The absorption of energy in the deep oceans, a quieter period of solar activity, a rather dirty atmosphere from uh, aerosols, particulates, particularly associated with China, and uh, a very strong El Nino in 1998. If you take those factors together, they uh, explain that you have a very powerful underlying trend and you have uh, oscillations. At this moment, oscillations moving in the direction of flatness. Uh, if anywhere in the world you should understand the difference between oscillations and trend, it's the London School of Economics. And uh, it's, uh, um, Greg quite rightly understood what you've got is a media attack on climate science. You haven't got a scientific attack on climate science. You still get 98% or so of the refereed papers on, in this area are very clear that this is an anthropomorphic um, phenomenon. The four factors I described are quite likely unwinding in this uh, coming uh, decade. So we have to make sure that the discussion of the climate science is exactly that. It's a discussion of the climate science. And as Steve Chu said, everybody's entitled, Nobel Prize physicist who was Secretary for Energy, everybody's entitled to his or her own opinions, but not to their own facts. Um, one fact important for this is that um, land temperatures have got on rising. This uh, uh, oscillation is particularly associated with surface temperature of the uh, Pacific. Uh, thirdly, gas. Uh, very, very crudely, it's 5, 10 and 15 gas price um, per million British thermal units. 5 or getting close to in the United States, 10 or so in Europe, 15 or so in Asia. It's a bit more subtle than that, but uh, crudely speaking. It costs perhaps three or four dollars to uh, transform from one country to another through liquefaction and transport. We should be embracing open markets, free trade. Um, this is a story where uh, you're going to get those gas prices coming closer together, partly as a result of the new unconventional gas being more active in different places, but also through world trade. So you're going to see, I hope, a, a more of the opportunities through international trade of the kind that Greg uh, 
Greg was describing. And let's not kid ourselves about what really determines where industry goes. It's about wage rates. It's about productivity. It's about uh, the investment climate. It's about exchange rates. These are stories, the big stories, cover the big costs. And it's in very, very few industries that you find the energy cost being a very high proportion of the activity. Uh, the world's, energy, the world's uh, industry has moved out, low-cost manufacturing moved out to Asia, not because of energy costs, but because of wage productivity exchange rate issues. So let's get our economics right on the uh, location of um, industries. Um, fourthly, the biggest deterrent to investment everywhere, this is an assertion, but it's got uh, evidence, is government-induced policy risk. Whether it be corruption, whether it be the functioning of the courts, whether it's the unpredictability of institutions, and in, in uh, other places, difficulty in forecasting policy. Government-induced policy risk is the biggest deterrent to investment. High carbon, low carbon, energy, other places. So, uh, Greg, your drive for consistency and clarity is of fundamental importance in terms of generating investment. The, Global, the Green Investment Bank, one example, but you've, you've stuck to your guns and it's very important that we think of uh, policies and institutional structures like the Climate Change Committee, like the Climate Change Story, which gives long-term credibility to public policy. Nothing more important than driving investment. Lack of clarity of policy gives you very little investment at all, wherever it uh, might be. Finally, China and the US. The picture of where China and the US are going has become encouraging. We shouldn't get overexcited. Uh, there's still big problems and long ways to go. But what we have now, I think, is the three very big emitting areas of the world, China, US and Europe, uh, changing in terms of leaderships and relationships. And you're seeing leadership in China. You're seeing, in a rather different and more complex kind of way, some leadership in United States. Perhaps that's more at the city and, and uh, state level, or it happens through the process of competition you've described. It could happen through the EPA. It's changing. Um, this is a moment where Europe shouldn't be going flaky. It's a moment where Europe should recognise that having been in the lead, and uh, many cases within Europe, UK being in the lead, that actually there is reaction. You've described it, and uh, Craig, you described it. And that this is a, a moment where uh, Europe should be recommitting itself, rededicating itself, because its earlier leadership, I think, is starting to show. These things come with lags, but it's starting to show that this is a moment, this next year, sorry, this next uh, two and a bit years, up to uh, Paris in, Decem in December 2015, where actually there's some alignment, some forces for change, and this is a moment where... I think your leadership, Fatih, and your leadership, Greg, here in the UK, is of special importance. It's leadership that is long-standing leadership. You just haven't, you haven't suddenly appeared as leaders. You've, you've been at it for a long while. And, not that uh, old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're not going there. I, I beat both of you by a considerable margin. Um, that, that leadership is outstanding, and uh, we're enormously grateful to you both for it. Fatih, it's a very special report. Uh, it does change the debate. It changed the debate. 
in a uh, crucially important direction at a very important time and on the back of serious research and serious work. So thank you very much for coming and and explaining it. Thank you, Greg, so much for setting out your own thoughts in such a clear way. And I do hope that you put your talk on the web or at least give it to us. And uh, because many of the numbers, examples, uh, I think should be on the record. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you all for coming.